I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. You are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on which we are discussing Cormac McCarthy's All the Pretty Horses. And in particular, we are going to discuss page 59 through the end of part one, which is roughly page 96. If you are reading in the edition that I am reading in, if you're not, then I don't know what page it's on. But I'm reading on the vintage one. And do either of you know? I don't People can figure it out, I guess, for themselves. I think it's pretty much the same, unless you're reading like an audiobook, in which case then it's different. In that you're case, it's reading different. it. <laughs> That's right. In that case, it's different. Uh-huh. It's time mm-hmm. stamps. Mm-hmm. So, but the point is, we're going to talk about through the end of part one. So, thus, we are not going to be discussing part two today. I just thought that would be, you know, weird to discuss part two when we're only reading up through the end of part one. Mm. It mm. just seemed up no i see the point Mm. yeah yeah um so cormac mccarthy and it he has a lot of books that involve horses david before we get to that i i i kind of wonder if readers might be interested to know that we are all online right now Mm. but we just spent last week together we we did we did spend last week together. And we spent last week together in Blowing Rock, North Carolina. This we did spend the, last like, week together in Blowing Rock, North Carolina. <laughs> cue the part of Keep the going. program where we try to make everyone jealous with the time that we had in Blowing well, Rock. Well, I mean, oh. lest they think that the three of us just went on a little yeah. getaway. Hey, guys. An excursion. Meet me in Blowing fun. Rock. Yeah. It yeah. was a close reads retreat, a writer's retreat Indeed. in which we read... Uh, well, five, a readers, we, we, a writers' retreats confusing because people might readers. think readers. I'm yeah. so sorry. It was a readers' retreat. It was close readers' retreat. Close reads listeners and close reads adjacent people came together in Blowing Rock, North Carolina, to discuss five works by Wendell Berry, and it was awesome. It, it was, was like really, summer camp. Really it was great. The best. And we're gonna do more of more of such things in the future. You know, maybe some more full full week type things. Maybe some long weekends here and there. You know, do all kinds of so stuff fun. in the next few years. So be on the lookout, I think is what was what we're trying to say. We had mm-hmm. 20 attendees. It was um, five days long. Well, Sunday evening until Friday afternoon. I, d- I knew maybe three people aside from the two of you. And now I feel like I have 20 really close friends that are all kind of flecked across the country. We, someone made a map, one of our attendees, wasn't, who made, wait, was it Tomaida who made that? Tomaida, yeah, shout out to her. Um, and we saw where everybody lived on this map of North America and yeah, we we're just kind of like spread all over the place. Pacific Northwest, the Midwest, the Northeast, the Southeast, it was great. It was such a great event. And now I'm full of, now I'm full of wistfulness. Going into nostalgia. This is nostalgia. This We're is having the, a moment. Yeah. Wistfulness and nostalgia. Should we have a moment of silence for that wistfulness and nostalgia? Or like, how do, you, how do you commemorate a moment of wistfulness? Well, you light like, a candle, but it's just it not, first? that's not good audio. Yeah. 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 You, yeah. yeah. You name it first, then you light a candle. But since the candle is not good audio, you breathe deeply for a couple of moments of wistfulness. Here we maybe go. Maybe we should, maybe so that we can more accurately capture future moments of wistfulness, maybe we should just start posting the, the videos of our episodes 
to to YouTube or something. But then the problem was there'd be so much boring stuff in the middle of it where we're like, hey, let me look for this passage. Logan, take this out. Yeah, right, right. Be a lot of that sort of thing. Logan hides a lot of our foibles. That's right. That's the point of having a person who is in charge of post-production and on a podcast. They make you seem way more competent than you actually are. Right. Speaking for Tim, of course. So <laughs> we, we are here to discuss all the pretty horses, though. Not Wendell Berry, much as, much as that was a great time. There were three, three things that we basically wanted to, to discuss. We talked about this in our chat that we have to kind of prepare. And the three, the three words that we used were uh, storms, horses, and orphans. And that's pretty much what we've got in this, in this part here. We get Indeed. orphans riding horses in storms, in fact. Um, do we want to start with storms, horses, or orphans? Heidi, you get to choose. I want to start <laughs> with... Horses, horses for 300. I want to start with storms, actually. And storms. I, but right. I, I mean, we've got to talk about the other two because they're super important. But I think storms is a great place to start. I loved this. I loved this passage. The first, this is the second time and I said this last week. I've not ever read this book with my eyes until this time. I listened to it <laughs> with my ears um, on Audible <laughs> a few months ago and loved it. And now I'm just crazy about it. Reading it a second time, man, for all you first timers, go back and read it again right away and pay attention to this storm. It's brilliant. And, and Heidi, you said off the air that the storm, that it was foreshadowing. And can you I say- did. I can't say too much about that because- Can you give us a hint about what, it's foreshad- what it might be foreshadowing? Yeah. So I think that I want to revisit this maybe in the Q&A or in the final episode. But I remember when I listened to the book a couple of months ago and Jimmy Blevins was saying, I'm going to die in a lightning storm. Mm-hmm. Lightning yeah. storm. Lightning's going to kill me. Right. And I, as a close reader slash listener, was like, hey, I bet that's important. Right. But I didn't know <laughs> what was going to happen. Mm. So now that I know, I'm looking at this storm, like, pay attention. It's so brilliant that the foreshadow, and I, one thing I will say is that what I'm loving about this book, going through it last week, we talked about kind of the biblical narrative and the mythological feel of it and kind of this primeval uh, underpinnings. Um, And that's true. And also it is just a totally tightly constructed, perfect chain reaction. Like it's unbelievable how brilliant the the that Corbett McCarthy took these things that just kind of feel like the normal day in the life of a cowboy, right? And then later, as it all pieces together, it's it's just stunning. So I yeah, can't the, say more. I know it's probably frustrating, but I don't want to give any spoilers. Last week we talked a lot about kind of the style, the voice, the point of view of Cormac McCarthy and how as you said, the, this is sort of an ancient biblical vibe going on. And it seems like these characters are just sort of looking to find their adventure. You know, they're trying to figure out what their life is going to look like. But then here, as you said, it, it be, one thing begins to lead to another. There's that, on page 71, there's that really important part where... Um, it says, in the morning, they caught up the horses and saddled them and tied on the damp bedrolls and led the horses out to the road. What do you want to do? Said Rollins. I reckon we better go find his skinny ass, said John Grady. 
and I'm adding that Cormac McCarthy rarely tells us who's actually speaking. And then it says, then Rollins says, what if we just went on? And John Grady says, John Grady mounted up and looked down at Rollins. I don't believe I can leave him here out, out here afoot. He said, Rollins nodded. Yeah. He said, I guess not. We get a lot of characters discussing like what, what's going to, what, what about what would happen if we just do this other thing that if we make a different decision than what it feels like we should. And it, it's funny how ultimately this pretty complex book and complex story is woven out of these like very simple dilemmas. Really simple decisions. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. like it's this, this chain reaction happens and the characters know that a chain reaction is imminent one way or the other. It's like, although they wouldn't put it that way, the question, what if we just went on? Like our story is going to dive. Like if we go this way, the story is going to go with it we're going to have one version of our story. If we decide to go the other way, we're going to have a different version of the story. And they know in the moment that the decision that they make is going to be deciding, you know, the deciding factor. I find myself wondering if McCarthy himself didn't, was wondering what he should have them do because he maybe didn't know what, in writing the first draft say, he didn't know what was going to come next. You know, he, I think he it might had be a vision for it perhaps, but then he finds the characters going away that he didn't necessarily intend. Yeah. I'm, I'd be curious mm. about that. Go ahead, Tim. Sorry. Well, I was going to say, it might be helpful to have a little um, plot recap here. So when we left our heroes, they were kind of, they had just crossed the Mexican border. They've met up with uh, this kid named Blevins and Blevins is, he's young, um, but there are things that don't quite fit about him. He is riding this incredible horse which makes them think if he's in Mexico riding this beautiful horse, the horse must be stolen and he's probably the one that stole it. That kind of crosses their minds. He's also got this really nice pistol and he's a great hand at his pistol. He's really a great shot and he proves it to Rollins. Rollins, the the best friend of John um, Grady Cole, who's our hero, Rollins is not impressed with Blevins, kind of wants to be done with Blevins, thinks that Blevins is just trouble on a saddle. And he's right in some ways. Blevins gets drunk. Um, they get some, this kind of like, I can't even remember the name of it, but they, they, they get drunk. They meet a couple of like some Mexican travelers and they get some cactus juice from drunk. them. They all get drunk. But Blevins, the effects on Blevins he's are 13. the heaviest. Yeah, yeah, he's just a baby. And he loses his horse in the process. And John Grady Cole and Rollins now have to kind of like face this decision. They think he's trouble. If you stole a horse, he's in trouble. Someone's tracking him, especially a horse this nice. They're not going to just leave him. And so they have this decision, the one that David's talking about. Do we continue to ride with Rollins? Do we bail him out of this lost horse situation? Or do we just like kind of mind our own business and stay safe? And I think one of the things about John Grady Cole that's beginning to show up in this novel is that he um, he's a person of real integrity, and he can't he won't leave Rollins afoot out in the Mexican Blevins. desert. He won't leave Blevins, Blevins afoot out on in the Mexican desert. It probably means that if he did, Blevins would die. Um, mm-hmm. And John Grady Cole won't do that. Rollins is reluctant to help him, but John Grady Cole's like, no, you know, I've got to do this. And so Rollins goes along with him. And we're going to find out, um, as David suggested later in the book, that that is going to be a decision with really severe consequences for 
for the both of them. So they help Blevins recoup his horse by basically stealing it from someone. They don't know who, who lives in a town. And the three ride out being chased um, by people from the town with guns. They split up. Uh, Rollins and John Grady Cole go in one direction. Blevins, who has the better horse, just jets out on his own. And we don't see Blevins again at the end of this chapter. And we follow John Grady Cole and Rollins. And where do we find them? We find them, they kind of track a, um, they track cattle, a herd of cattle back to a huge estate owned by a man that they've heard of, a man who's very, very, very wealthy. And there's one little glimmer of something that's also going to become a big issue in this story. Right as they're kind of riding into camp, into this this ranch, um, a young woman on horseback passes them by and McCarthy takes note of this young woman. And then right when they kind of, when when the guys get um, their own bunkhouse and they're kind of settling in for the night, Rollins mentions to John Grady Cold, what, did he, what does he say? It's like a classic understatement. Um, and in fact, I've got it. Um, you reckon that was his daughter? Rollins says to John Grady Cole. And John Grady Cole says, I'd say it was. Meaning this is the daughter of the owner of the ranch. And that's all we really get for now. That's all we really get. And on that hinge is going to turn our story. I do love that. Then Rollins, he says, you reckon that was his daughter? I'd say it is. And then Rollins is like, this is it's some country. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. And John Grady's like the dad. He's like, go to sleep, go to child. Sleep. Yeah. And then I love the next Rollins' word is, last, last yeah. questions. How long do you think you'd like to stay here? And John Grady Cole, about a hundred years. <laughs> go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely a, it's a hierarchy of action and vision for the world is, has, has emerged between the two of them as well. It's clear that Rollins looks up to John Grady and John Grady is the, mm-hmm. the leader of, of, the, mm-hmm. of the two of them, the one who seems to have the... The, just the leadership capacity and the, the stature, the stature, yeah, the wisdom. And a big thing to Heidi's point, he has an ability with horses, and um, Rollins is bragging to Blevins about this ability that John Grady Cole has with horses. And Heidi, his relationship with horses is—it's not just like capacity; it's not just the ability to break horses, is it? It's—it's it's something else. Something else is going on here with John Grady Cole. He has a, a preternatural ability with horses. Right. Well, and horses, I mean, they're in the title. They're everywhere in the book, doing lots of work. <laughs> they're, they're, they do a lot of work in the book. And I'm just so curious. A lot of, a lot of running. That. They do. They do some actual physical labor, plenty of that. And then they carry the story. Um, I love what you said about this hinges. I think there's several hinges in this story. And when we were talking about it off the air, David, you said, so you're saying Cormac McCarthy is giving us a should question, right? There's so much of that in Cormac McCarthy's work that's a 
people encounter a situation that requires them to choose and that that choice has like a very great weight and they either know that or they don't know that. And I've, I've been thinking a lot about, um, another offline conversation we had at the retreat. Actually, we were talking about this book on the, on, on the patio and we were talking about whether or not Tormac McCarthy is a nihilist and we all agree not. Right. But then what's the alternative? Because there's a lot of darkness in the, in the in his books. And I keep thinking as I'm reading it again, whether or not the the question of the book and why John Grady Cole is so compelling as a character is is this, is what like is it worth it to do the right thing, mm-hmm. even if the person is unworthy and it doesn't work out? Mm. There's a huge difference. There's a huge difference between a story being nihilist Mm -hmm. or having nihilistic, being nihilistic at its core Mm. and, and presenting a world where things are dark or the worst possible scenario is more likely to happen than the best possible scenario. Mm. That's not the same thing as nihilism. And I think the people read his Mm -hmm. books and they find them difficult and they find them dark. And then they accuse him of being nihilist. At the center of any Cormac McCarthy book, and especially this one, and I would argue No Country for Old Men as well, is the idea that moral principles are at work in the world and that, and that every decision we make determines the next thing that happens. Mm-hmm. And that the moral principles that are attached to the decisions that we make are not what determine whether you survive, but how you live. Yeah, And I think that's the opposite of nihilism. I mean, I think there's perhaps... You know, we could also say, well, he's not, you know, he's not pr- presenting like a traditional Judeo-Christian worldview. But then again, that's also not the same thing as nihilism. Mm-hmm. Um, and right. I think that the fact that John Grady Cole, as with other characters in his work, their consciences are constantly at work and, and engaged with moral questions is what makes these books more than just like adventure books. I totally agree. I completely agree. And I think that's actually tied in with the symbolic weight of horses in this novel that we have, you know, we talked last week a little bit about how horses often represent sexuality in books. There's also, but there, it does, horses do a lot more than that in this novel. And, and it's John Grady who, who can master them, right. Who can, and, and also loves them at the same time. And it's, I think that the weight of, I guess, the symbolic weight on horses kind of goes to that question of moral, uh, these these choices of great moral weight that the characters have to make. And with John Grady in this section, what he says is, I have to do the right thing, even though Jamie Blevins isn't like a good person, right? Mm. He, I'm not attached to him, not responsible for him. I'm He's just a kid running away with a stolen horse, right? But I have to take care of him mm-hmm. now that he's not like, and, and he can't walk away and leave him to his doom. And so I think with the, and it is the horse that he needs, right? It's the horse that the kids need, that the kid needs because without a horse, mm-hmm. he's going to die. And I, I didn't really understand how important horses were, right? Like that's just on a practical level in facing the world. If you're a cowboy, like you have to have a horse or you're dead. Like you can't navigate the terrain, mm-hmm. you can't find food, you can't get anywhere you need to go, you can't find shelter. Like there's the horse is essential. So for him to and 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 so to steal a horse then 
is a really, really big deal. It's a huge deal because you're taking someone's livelihood. The hanging um, in the West. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because horses are everything. They are necessary for survival. And there's this kind of power that is... Uh, that it takes like a special kind of knowledge to control and, and harness and master the power. And so just the same way that these characters have to make choices, there's these horses kind of hovering in the background, representing something that's beyond them that really only John Grady Cole can master much like the choices that we have um, in the novel that the characters have to make. So I think that horses are super, I mean, just what else, what else do you see with that? For me, let's let's talk about, um, make a comparison. Flannery O'Connor sets all of her stories in the Southeast of the United States. And that world has been described as kind of a Christ haunted place. It's not necessarily a Christian, but it's Christ haunted. And so, um, a, a character named Parker gets, a tattoo. And what does he get tattooed on his back? He gets the face of Christ tattooed on his back. And part of the reason he gets it tattooed on his back is because when he sees the print of the tattoo before it's applied to his back, the eyes of Christ are watching him. Everywhere he stands in the room, the eyes of Christ are watching him. And there's something about Parker feeling haunted by that image, so much so that he gets it imprinted on his back. I see Cormac McCarthy as kind of having um, a God haunted landscape in his work. And I mean, landscape, I think in Flannery O'Connor's stories, it's the character's conscious consciences that are haunted. But I think in Cormac McCarthy, it's the actual geography of the world that they inhabit that is really mm-hmm. haunted. And I think the, the place that you see it most, um, vividly is in some of these kind of rolling kind of metaphysical descriptions of the landscape. And I think the other place that you see it really well is in the interaction with the horses and the riders. One of our uh, close readers on the Facebook page said there's a, a Hebrew word, nephesh. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. N-E-P-H-E-S-H in the Old Testament. Sorry, I don't know that it shows up in the Old Testament, but it's a Hebrew word that is used to describe horses and dogs because there's this kind of soulish bond between human beings and those animals. And I think that the connection that John Grady Cole is going to have that we'll see clearly as the story unfolds, the relationship that he has with Redbow, his horse, and with other horses is something that's kind of beyond just a, a human and a mute animal. There's a deeper connection there. And I wonder if Cormac McCarthy might call it soulish, that they're, they're nephish in some way. Um, I, I just keep coming back to that. Whenever I read Cormac McCarthy, I, I read his, I, the landscapes are so alive. There's something like divine that's happening in the landscapes. And also just to repeat myself in the horses, the relationship with the horses. Yeah. I think that that's really just I, the connection between man and horse, between rider and horse that's forged through struggle Right. And 
builds, that struggle then builds a trust and a bond. And, and that is, I see that in this section, that idea of the bondedness and how important the bonds are between man and horse. Although that, I think that comes a little na- later in the novel more clearly, but right. the yeah. bond yeah, between, comes into focus. yeah, the bond between John Grady and Rollins is, I think really deeply explored. And it's really clear that that serves a purpose of setting John Grady up as a leader. Um, and also a man very capable of deep and intense loyal relationships, even though he's kind of this lone wolf cowboy. Right. Um, so yeah. we then build trust in him as a good man. Um, with the contrast with Rollins who doesn't want to help Blevins because he's more practical. Like it's not very practical to their mission for them to help him, which sets up those should questions that David was asking about. We have a kid who can shoot a gun on a stolen horse when they don't want to be seen or caught. Like it is a massively foolish thing to do to take this kid in. Um, And they do it anyway, because John Grady Cole can't not, you know, Hmm. right. He can't articulate why, but he just knows it's the right thing to do. And I, I think to your point that you are making, David, that that's not a question that nihilistic characters in a nihilistic world would ask or make a decision on that. And I think in that sense, then we have. This is not no exit. No, (laughs) this is, but, but we also have knowing Cormac McCarthy and this is not a spoiler. This Cormac McCarthy is dark. Things go bad in his novels. He says when people try to do something bad is going to happen, going to happen. And it's, so it is. And that, and then we have then from the very beginning, we know John Grady Cole is the leader, is going to make a choice, and that choice is going to have consequences. He's going to do the right thing, and something bad is still going to happen. And th- I think that's the most Christian question you can ask, to your point that you made earlier, David, which is, is it still right to do the right thing, even if I'm going to bring ruin on myself and others. And I think Cormac McCarthy like unflinchingly looks that question in the face in every single one of his novels. And it's actually quite beautiful. Mm. So I think one of the things that brings this together is the connection that he makes between nature and horse. Um, Yeah, that's good. So there's really interesting subtle ways he does this. Like if you look at page 70, I'm going to read a paragraph here and then skip ahead a little bit. Page 70 at the bottom, last full paragraph. Rollins is basically saying, first time I saw that kid, I knew he had a loose wing nut. It was red all over him, he says. And then, uh, and then this is what the narrator says. The rain was coming down in sheets. Blevins' horse stood in the downpour like the ghost of a horse. They left the road and followed the wash up toward a stand of trees and took shelter under the barest overhang of rock, sitting with their knees stuck out in the rain and holding the standing horses by the bridle reins. The horses stepped and shook their heads and the lightning cracked and the wind tore through the acacia and Palo Verde, and the rain went slashing down the country. They heard a horse running somewhere out in the rain, and then they just heard the rain. So there's a couple of things here. I, I, the way he... That last line I love so much because it's as if there's a horse running in the rain, and then they merge together. And the rain and the horse become one. Mm. And then there's the bit where... Um, the horses stepped and shook their heads and the lightning cracked. And um, as they're watching the storm, there's nature and beast sort of merge together into, into this one sort of like whole. And like, there's a ghostliness to that. And I think that, I think that's a really important part of 
McCarthy's sort of like ancient vision for literature. Yeah. And if you go to the next full paragraph after their little conversation, um, it says, by dark, the storm had slacked and the rain had almost ceased. Mm -hmm. They pulled the wet saddles off the horses and hobbled them and walked off in separate directions through the chaparral to the stand, spraddle-legged, clutching their knees and vomiting. Mm -hmm. The horses jerking their heads up. It was no sound they'd ever heard before. In the gray twilight, those retchings seemed to echo like the calls of some rude provisional species loosed upon that waste, something imperfect and malformed lodged in the heart of being, a thing smirking deep in the eyes of grace itself like a gorgon in an autumn pool. He's like, there's an ancientness to this animal. There's, an, there's like this animal has been there before people like John Grady and Rollins and Blevins had been there before even, you know, the cowboys had, you know, before their grandparents had been there. And, and the connection that he makes there, I think is really, really crucial. And, and, and really, um, there's something very, um, again, old Testament, very ancient, very Homeric about it. Um, when I read a passage passages like these, it's, it's like a, it reminds me of an epic simile or, you know, the, the sort of distinctives that make Homer and Virgil and even like Beowulf. So, so unique it's it's clear that he's alluding to those kind of works in my opinion and i think that that like when you take the horses and you take nature and you merge them together and then you put you put these characters who have to then interact with horses and that's going to we're going to see all kinds of different characters interacting with horses in very different ways in the second two-thirds of the book the second and the rest of the book you know what i'm saying um when you put people in connection with nature slash horse and that they have to interact with it we begin to learn about those characters in terms of how they interact with it and then how nature slash horse responds to them it begins to reveal how we're supposed to think about the characters themselves i think and the, and the moral order of the universe i think it's worth reading that section again david it's such a great section i'll, I'll read it this time yeah, take I mean, it. it's a it's a description of two boys ralphing in the desert but listen to how it sounds. It's just so remarkable. They pulled the wet saddles off the horses and hobbled them and walked off in separate directions through the chaparral to stand spraddle-legged, clutching their knees and vomiting. The browsing horses jerked their heads up. It was no sound they'd ever heard before. In the gray twilight, those retchings seemed to echo like the calls of some rude provisional species loosed upon that waste something imperfect and malformed lodged in the heart of being, a thing smirking deep in the eyes of grace itself, like a gorgon in an autumn pool. It's so beautiful. And it's about two <laughs> teenagers barfing in the desert. You know, I mean, like, not to over make the point, but this is not, I think a contemporary writer, a contemporary author, could tell that same story and and be maybe a little bit disgusted, laugh at the failings of these young men. But with McCarthy, there's something kind of really noble here. The horses have never heard this before. And this is like a disordering. It, we see the boys barfing through the eyes of this animal and mm -hmm. something is disordered here. Something is not right. Like a Gorgon in an autumn pool. 
Yeah, it's like loosed upon the plains. Yeah, loosed um, upon the waste of the it world. So, it, we suddenly get these boys associated with the wildness of the of nature, and an alien note within it. That's important, I think, in that paragraph that they the the natural world doesn't recognize mm-hmm, the sound; yeah, mm-hmm. they don't have any context for it, and that comes up again in a couple of places in which John Grady and Rollins present themselves and to some kind of natural part of the world and they there they strike an alien note and and so there is kind of this i think one of the really beautiful and also disorienting and a bit unsettling aspects of mccarthy's writing is this um like he does he writes the landscapes and there's kind of this little bit of disconnect between humans and nature and um they they cause each other pain and and that there's never like a full union between the two and the civilized world and the kind of the wild world and the, you know, the world beyond the wall. Um, And so that is, uh, that I think makes the descriptions of nature so beautiful, but also gives us a sense of being an alien Mm -hmm. within it. And I, I think that that's intentional on his part. We just finished a week of discussion about Wendell Berry and Wendell Berry's world and so much of Wendell Berry's world is about the relationship between human beings and land. And it's in Wendell Berry's work, that relationship must be nurtured and cultivated to become harmonious. And I think in Wendell Berry's world, because he's dealing with a very different type of world and a, di- a very different kind of stance toward the world, the idea of a harmony between um, man and nature is very far off. Again, I think the, like one of the rare instances that you see it is that the, is the inner working between cowboy and his horse. It's like one of the few instances you've seen it. So much of the rest of the interplay of nature in this story is pretty brutal. He tells the story mm. of like, hold your kid's ears here. He tells the story of how, there was a flock of birds that got blown in the rain this in this storm that you know the guys endure and as they're riding their horses the next day they see this all these small birds that have been impaled on huge cactus needles and he describes in somewhat graphic detail all the kind of like horrific poses that these impaled birds took when they were killed on the spikes of these cactuses. So this is a very different, a very different kind of relationship that human beings have with nature, very different from the one as described by Wendell Berry. And I don't think that they are um, antithetical. I, I don't think that those are irreconcilable. I think that Wendell Berry is describing a bucolic agricultural world and kind of the relationship between human beings and crops that is one that must be nurtured and harmonized. And I think that Wendell Berry would say something like, before that happens comes the war. There has to be a war before that. There has to be this sort of um, taming of nature in some way by human beings. And it's not going to be, it's not always going to be pretty. Sometimes it's going to be pretty bloody. Yeah. I mean, uh, he's written in places about how, we should just never have plowed in certain places, you know, 
certain things we shouldn't have just not tried. You're talking about Barry or talking about yeah, McCarthy? Barry, Barry. And I saw, you know, I, in some ways, I think they're kind of just coming at the same story from a different angle, um, from the, the same ideas. I mean, using different metaphors, maybe. Um, but, how, but Heidi, what were you going to say something to add to add to that? No, but I think that I like what you said to him that they're not in opposition to each other, the two of them. But we're also talking about two very different kinds of human work uh, that's brought to the land. And the like the great sadness of John Grady's life is that he's been displaced from his home, from his ranch, right? He doesn't, he's a man without a place, and but he longs for a place. There's this permanence within him that is looking for um somewhere to root you know Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. um so i think that there's such a sense within the novel of his displacement and the grief that that causes him and how he's always kind of longing for a permanent place and 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 the land is inhospitable to him and and so he has to make his way through it in order to you know kind of find a port Mm. in the storm and this vision that we have of um, of the ranch where he is, you know, where they've been taken in is like very, it has like a very paradise-like feel it to does. it even now uh, for this, like for these like homeless orphans, you know? Yeah, it does. And I mean, like to your point, Heidi, maybe they're stepping into kind of a Wendell Berry world when they arrive at the farm when they arrive, excuse me, when they arrive at the ranch, it's been domesticated. There are fences up. There are living quarters for human beings. And they've just spent the last however many days crossing a desert that's just completely inhospitable to them. That one that's just like red in tooth and claw, ready to do them in. And there's something so satisfying when they get to rest. They get to arrive at this great big ranch, put in their names, and they get a soft bed to sleep in. And they're grateful for it. As much as they enjoy their wanderings and their adventures, they're really grateful for it. Well, so Heidi, I want to shift gears a little bit because of time. We're already at like 45 minutes here. And there's the lightning storm, which I know you want to talk about, Heidi. And there's also, there's this Dickens quote that you keep bringing up to us, Heidi. And I want to give you a chance to do a little, a little, a little talk for us on what, how you made this connection. It's a pretty famous quote from Hard Times. And I'll, I'll just give you the floor, but those are two things I feel like we need to talk about before we go. Okay. All right. I'll keep it. I'll keep it short. Um, <laughs> so in Dickens' Hard Times, there's a uh, just as David said, a really, really famous quote uh, that I just kept haunting my brain as I was reading this novel this time. Uh, and it is a conversation with the headmaster in the school, and he's just terrible. He's the worst, uh, and uh, he's quizzing these kids uh, on whether or not they know the material. And he asks this young, beautiful girl that our protagonist has a crush on, uh, what is a horse? And she can't answer the question. So the headmaster turns to uh, this like little snot of a kid. He's just (laughs) awful, a bully um, and a suck up um, or try hard. That's what kids say now. He's a useless Clarence scrub. He's a Eustace Clarence scrub. That's perfect. Um, And he definitely reads the wrong kinds of books. So anyway, Bertzer, this Tryhard kid responds to uh, the question, what is a horse with this? And he says, uh, hold on. Bertzer gives a perfect reply. Quadruped, graminivorous, 
40 teeth, namely 24 grinders, four eye teeth, and 12 incisive. Did I say that right? Shreds coat in the spring in marshy countries, sheds hoofs too. Hoofs hard, but requiring to be shod with iron, age known by marks in mouth. So he describes, Bertzer describes the parts of a horse and he, he nails it, right? These are the parts of a horse. He's a quadruped, blah, blah, blah. But that's not a horse, right? That's not a horse. He has no vision of it as, a, as the thing itself, but only as its parts. And I think that one of the things that, McCarthy, that Cormac McCarthy is doing in this novel is inviting us to ask the questions about the nature mm. of things, right? What is, what is a horse? What does it do? Like, what is, if, if we're, if we're surrounded by all the pretty horses, what mm. does that mean? Um, and also then what is, what is a man? What is it? I think that's the question undergirding some of the decisions that these boys are making all mm. the time, right? Like in this harsh world, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a human? How do I make choices without and when yeah. I'm kind of an orphan in the world, uh, um, how do I, for, for Blevins, he's so afraid of the storm. It's such a childlike response that he has. And there's this very strange collision of child and of like innocent, vulnerable child and also like predatory man in Blevins that, that we have from the very beginning of even just laying eyes on him. And um, there's this, there's these two parts to him and this mixed up, but when, when he's so afraid of the storm, which of course a storm is always symbolic of a story of change, of chaos, of, um, you know, destruction. Um, and, and he is so afraid he's going to die and he responds like a child in a, and, but he's in a man's world. There are consequences to being childlike in a man's world. And we're going to see that. Um, and, you know, right away we see, it cause he loses his clothes. He loses his hat. He tramples his hat on the way out, which that's another, that that's bad to a cowboy. You can't lose your hat. So you're going to get sunburned and, uh, I mean, the hat does so much for them. So anyway, I just, I think that this Dickens quote kept running through my mind because it's, that is not a horse. A horse is actually the thing we see in all the pretty horses, this like multifaceted, um, all these different levels of power and control, and it's bigger than us, and yet we can master mm. it. And, you know, this, this, this is the, the, the kind of the complicated nature of, uh, the, of things, what is a thing that I think Cormac McCarthy brings out in this novel. That Dickens quote is all about measuring the horse, mm -hmm. right? It's about finding mm -hmm. like one aspect of the horse, its teeth, its um, coat, its hooves. And those are the kind of like things by which you can identify a horse. But I think in the eyes of the cowboys in Mexico and in Texas, the horse is the totality of the thing, which is not to say that they don't like evaluate the horse's quality by looking at its teeth. Of course they do. But the horse is something grander than that. The, the horse is a total. It's a whole. Hmm. I love. And it's purposeful. Mm -hmm. yes. It does something. They need the horse like for their survival, but they also have a great love for it and connection and bond with it. So no, no, anyway, no. I'm sorry, I David. Was just gonna say, I love go. what you I said. That from McCart this is a book about the nature of things. I think it's about, like I wrote in the front of my book, what is the nature of the land? And given that, hmm. what is man's purpose in that land? land i think that's the hmm. big question and then ultimately then like 
what I've always wondered is what is he saying that the horse's role is in that relationship? Because there is there is this right. land, there is this place that has a unique, it has a unique soul, and then there are the people that are live there. And what is the what is the right relationship for man and the land? The reason the reason that his books are dark is because this is a difficult land. The soul of this land is harsh, <clears throat> and so thus it makes man's relationship with it difficult. So given that, how does how is man ought to interact with the place that he he lives? And then the question becomes, what is the role that horses play in that? To me, that's the whole question of the book. Mm-hmm. There's the soul of the land. Agreed. There's the soul of man. And in between them is the soul of the horse. And, and, mm-hmm. and then I'm not going to say more than that. That's how I believe that that's what this book is playing out. Is the role I also of the horse. think it I is a hard too. land that they live in. I think part of the darkness of Cormac McCarthy's landscape is also men make evil choices. Like right. there is something really, when, when Cormac McCarthy introduces a dark character He's not cheating on his taxes. He's gone the whole way. <laughs> so there's this scene that we see. It's like, oh, it's such a haunting scene. There are these couple of vaqueros, I guess. Enough, enough. Oh, in, oh, in, in this, this reading. Scene. In yeah, this yeah. reading. Yes. Um, no, you're right. And yes. John Grady like, Cole and uh, his, I'm you sorry. know, the, the three, our three Americans ride up to the vaqueros and they're nice enough to begin with. They share their beans and tortillas and John Grady Cole is sitting with Blevins and Rollins. And then later he goes to visit them and he gets a light from them and he asks them some questions. And the, these writers start asking John Grady Cole about Blevins. Cause now Blevins is this Blevins is in this weird situation that he's riding double back with John Grady Cole He's down to his underwear, right? No he's got nothing on except for like his hat. It's not weird at all to be walking around in the middle of a desert where it's, it's 100 degrees and the weird, sun's blazing right? on you. <laughs> and it's funny when it begins, but then these writers start asking questions of John Grady Cole. And what they really want to know is, will they sell, will, will he sell Blevins to them? Will he sell them? And John Grady Cole plays it cool. Nah, you know, I'm not really in the market to sell right now. And then he quickly gets back to the horses and he's like, let's go. We got to get out of here. Let's go. And Rollins and Blevin are like, what's going on? Tell us what's going on. He's like, no, we just got to get out of here. And so McCarthy doesn't explain who these people are, but it's very clear there's a darkness there a profound darkness in these guys that they're willing to kind of buy and sell human flesh. And it happens so kind of blithely. The inquiry is so blithe. It's not, it's not, um, what a nice looking human being. I would sure like to own him myself. No, it's just kind of a casual interest, but John Grady Cole knows what it means and he gets them out of there. So yeah, between the viciousness of nature and the viciousness of, characters who have gone wrong that's part of the reason that john excuse me that mccarthy's books are so dark is he doesn't like yeah. do the suburbs of evil so, he just so does took, like the full on like it is fully dark here the suburbs of evil yeah <laughs> i i think that's that perfect. the big thing with mccarthy is the way you respond to the land becomes you become determines who you become and I think you can either become like there is a kind of person who can be sucked in to the into that darkness, and then you then they put on that darkness. 
Well, um, I don't, I don't think I agree with that, David. I mean, I think that's a very, like, I would agree if you were saying that about Wendell Berry, 100%. I don't think, I don't know if that's true about Wendell, uh, about. What would you posit as an alternative? I think that he believes that human beings must act. They must have a code. They absolutely must have a code. I don't think that he would say that it arises from nature. I think that he thinks that in some ways um, it's a, I don't want to say a stepping out of nature, but maybe a stepping above nature. And, And I think, thus the word, it's metaphysical. It's above the physical. I could, Is that different? I could defend that, but I almost I, I, like I think it might be a fun conversation to return to later in the podcast. He's published one piece of nonfiction, maybe a couple pieces of nonfiction, but a few years ago he published something that was nonfiction, and part of my answer kind of comes from comes from that. Is that different than what I'm saying, though? It sure. I, I think it. That's what I was. Well, tell me ask. if it's not. Tell me how it's not. Okay, so what I'm saying is that that people begin can, if they make the wrong decisions, begin to put on or to become more like the darkness of the natural world. So those, I don't think that I don't disagree with the code thing. I think he thinks they absolutely have a code. The problem is that the code is what. This is why the horses matter. There's a code to the way that you interact with a horse, and there's a rightly. Man and horse should have a right. Uh, there's a way. There is a. There is a. An order of relationships that is, is is right and correct, but that some people. They, they drop the code, and when they drop the code, they become more like the land. The isn't the question at times the, the land has come from. We just, that is a question. I don't know if it's the question for this. I, th- I think May- it's the question that we're asking because I think you, you and I both agree. Like there's a code of the way that a cowboy ought to treat his horse. Absolutely. I think the, 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 if we have a disagreement, which we, maybe we don't, but if we have one, I think it's about where that code comes from. I heard you saying it comes from kind of like um, there's a kind of harmony with nature that we meet, that we need to learn from. And I'm a little suspicious that I don't think that McCarthy thinks that I, at least I don't see it. No, I don't think I would say that he is suggesting that man should be seeking harmony with the land per se. I think that he is saying that there is a, a I don't like using the word darkness because I don't think that's comprehensive enough. But for the sake of conversation, I'll use it. That there is a darkness at the core at the core of the land that it is easy for men to become like. I think that's separate from. I don't think that he's saying. In fact, I think he's saying. I think that would be saying that he's. It's the opposite of harmony with the land. And I can get with that. I, my question. My question to you is. So where do the, where does the goodness come from? Go on. What do you mean? I yeah. will jump in and say I have no <laughs> idea. I think that's one of my. You mean like um, hold on though? What 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 do you mean? I, like do you mean like when characters make good choices? Where does that come from? Where where does That's John? Why question. does John Grady yeah, Cole clarify. not leave Blevins out? He should. He absolutely should. If he is merely looking to kind of preserve his neck and his buddies, there's no choice they should leave Blevins. 
everything about Blevins is leading them toward destruction. But he chooses something that I, yes. that I it seems to me is he chooses humane. He has a humane so, choice, a choice of like to kind of transcend the kind of base notion that I'm just going to save my own skin. I think that the answer to that question, I think it's the same question as why does he treat horses well? Go ahead, Heidi. I mean, we can, this is, this is the book. To me, this is the, we're talking about that question for the rest of the book. I know. This is, this is the book. And I think that this is what I don't know about Cormac McCarthy. And I often wonder if this is why the charge of nihilism is leveled against him from religious readers. And they say, oh, I don't want to read that guy's too dark, right? I think a lot of it is because I don't think there's a compelling internal logic to answer that question within the novels. I I think that David's, and I'm not saying that's a flaw. I'm I, and I'm going to come back around to that in a second because what David, what you just said about kind of the uh, the uh, like the intermingling of the. Uh, depravity of, I know that's a religious word, but like the depravity that people are capable of. And also the like kind of harsh tooth and claw, uh, red and tooth and claw nature of the landscape, that those two things work together. And that that I think too, uh, Cormac McCarthy, it's a more that the description of the land as a harsh place is more than just a literary technique, right? However, I do think that it's very mysterious and so compelling when you have a character with a moral center within the novels. It's always the hero, right? And always undergoes some kind of real harsh pushback and consequences for his goodness within the harsh world. And yet I always leave the books with a sense of hope and a sense of like, it's good to be Mm -hmm. like John Grady Cole. I, I ought to be like that. That's, that's, the person I need to be, but I do not find a compelling internal logic to explain why to be the source of the goodness within the novels. They're not religious, right? They don't, and and they're not surrounded by good people. They're displaced from a tradition and from their family. Like there's, there's no reason other than an internal one, other than what I would say as a Christian is the image of God in them. That's why it's such a compellingly beautiful story is because they never, those characters, the John Grady Coles, they don't ever lose that in them, even though those around them have and the landscape seems to have. But there's some kind of moral center within them. And you always leave the novels feeling like, that person is amazing. Mm. I want to be like that. Mm. I think this is the same question that we ask at the end of No Country for Old Men, right? Because yes. we won't give it away. You should read the book, but something very important happens because a character looks evil in the face and says, I'm not playing your game. Mm. And then the whole story resolves because of that. What does it resolve? The story ends because of that. You see it in the movie too. They actually is heightened in the movie. Um, compared to what it is mm-hmm. in the book. But um, I think that, I think that that's, that's the question that what Tim, you asked at, at Heidi's point, I think, why does John Grady make good decisions? Why is he a good guy? Where does this good come from? I think that's the question of the book. And the, and the other question is, was he going to keep it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He puts him, he, McCarthy's going to put John Grady through some things. that are going to test his, 
his soul, Mm -hmm. his greatness of soul to use a phrase that we talked about last week. And it's going to push him and push him and push him. And we're going to see how he responds to that. I I, I think that is the question of the book. Is he going to continue to be good despite these like circumstances, which are going to be very hard, like extremely hard. The, The other question, I think Heidi said it really well is kind of like, where does it come from in him? Where does it come from in him? And I, I think when I read um, Cormac McCarthy, I think about this essay that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote about Beowulf. And Tolkien kind of makes a little aside in the um, essay. I can't remember the name of it right now. Um, it has the word monster in it. And he says how much he respects the kind of life world of the Norse people that gave rise to the story of Beowulf because they fought against death and they didn't really know, they didn't really always have a great explanation about why they were fighting against death and why they were fighting for life in the way that a Christian could give a full flowering story and a rich, Mm -hmm. robust theology. The Norse people did not have that kind of a sophisticated kind of theology in which they're going to say, this is the reason that we are, that we fight death, but they fought it nonetheless. And Tolkien has so much respect for that. I mean, he has so much respect for that. Like, give it up. Mm -hmm. That's the way to do it. And sometimes I feel that way about McCarthy's characters. You don't always know why they're fighting against death or why they're fighting for goodness. And I don't think that they really know why, you know, Hmm. I don't think they do, but I think we'll see a glimmer of it with John Grady Cole at the end of this trilogy. I just like to look way forward. And, and for me, (laughs) I don't think it merely arises from nature, but as we're talking, David and Heidi, maybe don't want to, we don't want to get into this too much, but I wonder if part of like, we have the three of us, I come from a different tradition that you guys come from theologically. And I wonder if there is a broader rift in my tradition, which is a more Protestant tradition. If there's a more broad rift between um, nature and um the divinity. I think theologically speaking, there has traditionally been a broader rift among Protestants. In other words, Protestants are a little bit skeptical about natural law theory. Like we're going, we're getting in real deep here, right? We're a little bit skeptical of natural <laughs> law theory because um, there's a sense in which the revelation of God, yes, um, is natural and well-ordered and sensible. And there's another sense in which the world did not know him who is the author of nature. So there's that, that rift. And I think Protestants tend to lean into that a little bit more than Catholics and Orthodox do. So I wonder if that might be a little bit of um, how we, like maybe we see nature a little bit differently. I'll have, to th- I'll have to think about that while I'm reading. I think there's a sense in which for McCarthy, nature is, a, I mean, goodness is, a, goodness is, a, is like a miracle. When you have moments of goodness, they have, sometimes they have great power. Their very existence is like water in a, way, in a desert. 
Mm. It's like an oasis and mm-hmm. it's like a, mm-hmm. it's like that little pool that they're looking for with water for horses and for them. And most of the time you're not going to have, you're not going to see it, but when you do, it's a very relieving thing to come across and it can make, can linger for a while. So I, I think there's a sense in which um, someone like, like John Grady and his, his sort of core instincts are, are sort of miraculous. And I think it's one of the reasons why he is appealing to people. Um, mm. I think we're going to see that show up. People kind of different kinds of people gravitate towards him and view him from, we already see with Rollins and um, Blevin, but we're especially going to see that in this next section. Yeah. Um, which brings me now to our weekly transitional comments. What are your final thoughts? Because <laughs> I have to go pick my car up, which has been in the shop for two days and I have 17 minutes to do so. So oh, I calculate, I have five minutes to drive. It'll take me about five minutes to drive over there, which leaves me another 12. Now I go now 11 minutes for us to do final thoughts and for me to run to my car. So, um, luckily Sorry. today I don't have to, I don't have to do anything horseback. Uh, <laughs> But sometimes it would be better to have a horse because then I wouldn't have to take him to the shop. Heidi, what are your final thoughts? Um, I think in light of our conversation that we just had about the moral center of Cormac McCarthy, I'm going to do yet another plea for the book and for our listeners to hang in there because the what we we're we're seeing a lot like i said this book is a pretty tightly constructed chain reaction this leads to this leads to this leads to this leads to this right and um we don't know what's going to happen but as rollins said he has a feeling something bad is going to happen and we confirmed that so when it arrives i think we need to be and 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 until then even it's really important, I think, for people to who don't like that darkness, right? Who are, who are resistant to it, lean in with the question: Why would somebody do the right thing, mm. even if this was going to happen, right? And I think that will, I think that absolutely mitigates the charge of narcissism. Of, of nihilism against Cormac McCarthy, because I think he would say that you should Mm. do the right thing anyway, but I'm not sure if he can explain that. And I think that that is where I find so much pathos in this story and in his books, because I, I see a man who so believes in goodness, but even he can't quite articulate why, right. But still seems to ask his characters Mm. to be good. Um, in a harsh world. And that is, I think, as a mom, like, you know, I know a lot of moms are listening. I want to be able to be the person who instills that in my children, right? The kind of person who's as saying, you should do the right thing anyway, but it costs you everything, right? And that is, I think that's, it's Cormac McCarthy that as a contemporary author so unflinchingly asks that question. And I think we ought not to shy away from that question and stories that cost a character everything for doing the right thing. I think we ought to read them and think about them and chew on them and let them change us. Well said. Tim, final thoughts. I'd like to read um, a section from 94. Our guys have been out in the desert we've seen nothing but kind of like brown land, brown plants, um, brown water. We haven't seen much of anything with color. 
and then at the top of 94. There was a road on the other side of the fence and the road and in the road there were tracks of tires and in the tracks of horses from the recent rains and a young girl came riding down the road and passed them and they ceased talking. She, she wore English riding boots and jodhpurs and a blue twill hacking jacket and she carried a riding crop and the horse she rode was a black Arabian saddle horse. She'd been riding the horse in the river or in the Sinigas because the horse was wet to its belly and the leather fenders of the saddle were dark at the lower edges and her boots as well. She wore a flat crowned hat of black felt with a wide brim and her black hair was loose under it and fell halfway to her waist as she rode past and turned and smiled and touched the brim of her hat with the crop and the vaqueros touched their hat brims one by one down to the last one, down to the last of those who'd pretended not even to see her as she passed. Then she pushed the horse into a gated rack and disappeared down the road. <laughs> it's just so good. It's so, so good. It's like this, this flash of something otherworldly comes in and we get the, like the focus of the camera is on her and it just changes everything for a little bit. So I was going to read a passage from 93 because this happens right after this passage. Um, that night they camped on a ledge of rock above the plains and watched the lightning all along the horizon provoke from the seamless dark, the distant mountain ranges again and again. That is unbelievable writing, by the way, mm. the lightning provoked from the seamless dark, the distant mountain ranges again and again. Mm -hmm. Like there are ways of saying what he just said and no one else would say it in exactly that same way. Carrying on though, crossing the plain the next morning, they came upon standing water in the Bajadas and they watered the horses and drank rainwater from the rocks and they climbed steadily into the deepening cool of the mountains until in the evening of that day from the crest of the Cordilleros, they saw below them the country of which they'd been told, like the Israelites, right? The grasslands lay in a deep violet haze and to the west thin flights of waterflower, waterfowl, fowl, ugh, water fowl were moving north before the sunset <laughs> in the deep red galleries under the cloud banks like schoolfish in a burning sea. And on the foreland plain, they saw vaqueros driving cattle before them through a gauze of golden dust. It's like they come out of the mountains, they see the land that had been prophesied. Yeah. And they see the most beautiful woman they've ever seen. Yeah, before. exactly, exactly. It's the promised land. And that's what they, like. so at the end of this section, it's like, we're going to stay mm -hmm. here for a hundred years, yeah. all as well. But don't forget that earlier in the book, Rollins had been like, looking into the fire, something bad is going to happen. I know, I know, I know. So that's right still hovering over the story. Everything good to happen, but we know. It can't last, but it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be wonderful for a little while. It's going to be really nice for a little while. Enjoy, enjoy it. Enjoy, enjoy it. Well it. Last. And enjoy the great writing. <laughs> and enjoy this episode. Enjoy this episode. That we, just, we just finished, which is now <laughs> over. So. so hope you did enjoy it. With that, I, I am, I, I'm going to end it. Do you need to say anything else? I've got to pick up a car. Tim, you've got to go. Heidi's probably got to get a horse or something. Talk, so. to, talk to a guy about a horse. Yeah, I do. I have to go talk to okay. a guy about it. Well, have fun with that. <laughs> Just make sure that you don't talk about how it's got 40 teeth, namely 24 grinders, four eye teeth, and 12 incisive. That they shed coats in the gonna, spring I'm in marshy counties, countries, shed hooves <laughs> that are required to be shot with age. 
with iron and age known by marks in the mouth. I don't know why I had to read all that. I just just don't bring that up with the guy about, <laughs> guy about his horse. With that, for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, I am David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.